Let's go ahead and get into Revelation. We haven't been in Revelation in a couple of weeks uh, because of uh, Good Friday and certainly Sunday, uh, Easter Sunday. You'll remember that Jesus, this book of Revelation is about Jesus. It's, it's an unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's an unveiling not only of him himself, but also his plans for the future. And so we see in the first chapter, specifically verses 12 through 16, we see this wonderful uh, description of Jesus in his glorified state. Remember that after he was crucified, on the third day he rose again, and the Bible says that he was visible to hundreds of people for 40 days, for 40 days, and uh, in his resurrection body. And then on, the, on that 40th day, or after 40 days, he ascended from the Mount of Olives, which is just opposite the Temple Mount today. He ascended into heaven at that point, and the Bible says he's going to return to that very same spot when he returns in his second coming, and so that's really exciting. But this book is about Jesus Christ, an unveiling, taking off the wraps, if you will, of Jesus Christ. The last Sunday we got together, we looked at the church of Ephesus. We know that there were seven different churches here in chapters 2 and 3, which is what we're looking at for the next couple of weeks, or next several weeks, probably for the next month or two, we'll be looking at these seven churches. Last time we got together, we looked at the church of Ephesus, but this morning we're going to be looking at the church of Smyrna, and then we're going to hear about Pergamos, and the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, the church of Philadelphia, and certainly the church of Laodicea. And we'll be mindful that these churches... Uh, not only physical churches at this time, uh, but they were um, the representative of all the church age. If we look at these seven churches that you see on the on the screen, you'll notice that they, they they were physical churches at that time in the first century, and they also just happened to be representative of all the church age. Because as we look at each one of these churches, you'll notice the, the commendations and the rebuke that Jesus gave to these churches. And remember, these letters in chapters 2 and 3 were letters that Jesus wrote to these churches, these specific churches. And they were commendations, good things. And there were also some things of rebuke where the Lord would, would tell them that you know they need to uh, uh, shapen up, in a sense, in some of these different areas. But when you look at all of these together, we see really the whole church age. Because in every church, you'll find those who are losing their, their first love. You'll find some that are doing really well. You'll find some fellowships that are just filled with love and, and everything's just going really well. And so we see a composite out of all these letters that Jesus is dictating. We see ourselves in those letters. And, and so... That's what we want to look at. We want to look at the historical perspective of what happened to these churches and also examine our own hearts as we go through these letters to see, Lord, where do I, where do I stack up you know, from these things? And so that's what we're going to do. And so let's look at this letter. We know that on the, if you notice there on the map, there is uh, Ephesus. You can see is right down there, right above Miletus, uh, just north, north of that. But the one that we're going to, the church that we're going to look at this morning is Smyrna, which is about 35 to 40 miles north of Ephesus. 
And this was a rival city, a uh, rival because they both were, were very beautiful cities. They were very commercial cities, and um, they, they, were in, they were rivals of one another. And so you can see that this is Asia Minor. Uh, we call this area now Turkey, and specifically Western Turkey. One of the things about this city of Smyrna is that, like Ephesus, it was a seaport, and as a result of that, it was a, a trading center, and uh, unlike Ephesus, it, it is still inhabited. You remember that Ephesus was a city that was, uh, even today, is, has been, uh, it's, it lies in ruins. There's really nothing uh, there in Ephesus, but Smyrna is inhabited by over 3 million people today. And its harbor is even better than that of Ephesus. Today, the modern day is Izmir, and that's the Turkish name that it's given. This city was celebrated for its schools. It had uh, schools of science, medicine. It was known for its beautiful buildings. We know that there, they had a theater there that could accommodate 20,000 people. And in Smyrna, there was, in around 26 AD, the, the, the people of Smyrna, in order to deify Tiberius Caesar, he, they asked for permission to build a, uh, a temple for, in honor of Tiberius Caesar and, in a sense, worshiping him. And they had to ask for permission. And what a nice guy. He was so willing to let them do that. And so, uh, so it was a temple for Tiberius Caesar. It also had a temple of Zeus, a temple of Diana, a temple to Aphrodite, a temple to Apollo, and a temple to Asclepius, which you know is the, is the god of healing and medicine. And you'll notice that even in our, um, on most medicines uh, or on uh, pharmacies, you'll see the post with the snake wrapped around it. That is Asclepius. That is the Roman god Asclepius. And, and so that's where they get that from, is from the Roman god Asclepius. And so it also had a stadium, and it was actually at the stadium that one of the early church fathers, his name was Polycarp, he was martyred in this theater around 155 A.D. And so, uh, an interesting place. And so, let's just get right into it. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, and then we'll get right into it. It says, and to the angel, or to the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Smyrna, these things, these things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. But be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. By the second death. And so let's go back to verse 8 here. It says the angel to the church at Smyrna. We know that this angel... Uh, could be referring to Polycarp. It could be another man there at the church in Smyrna. Remember, the church was 
a, a, a church there amongst the others, amongst the other pagan Gentiles that were around there. So they were just in the center of really a, a den of iniquity, really. And, and yet God was so impressed by their, by their love and by their, their fortitude. And even though they were very poor, they continued onward. And, and the Lord was with them, even though they had nothing. And he, even though they were being persecuted, and God was with them. And so it could have been Polycarp that he was talking about. Polycarp was actually burned at the stake in Smyrna, like I said before, in 155 A.D., uh, the Jews and the Romans were both complicit in, in setting, uh, burning him at the stake. And tradition tells us that the fires weren't consuming him like they wanted, and so they actually stabbed him to death uh, to hasten his death. And so a uh, pretty brutal way to lose your life, but we know that he is in glory right now, and um, he has nothing to worry about. But notice... To the angel of Smyrna, write these things, says the first and the last. So he's writing to Smyrna. And due to the persecution and death that many of those in the church experienced in Smyrna, the city's name, the very name of the city was, was somewhat prophetic of, of the um, concerning what the church's experience was going to be there. And why do I say that? Because the, the very name Smyrna means myrrh. And myrrh is an ordinary perfume. It's a, a fragrant um, gum resin from certain trees there in that area. And it's very popular. And, and the, the very word had the idea of worship and, and suffering and sacrifice and, uh, and connected with death. Um, in fact, myrrh was a main ingredient in the holy anointing oil for the tabernacle. Remember when Aaron and his sons, they were the high priests, and the priests in the temple and in the tabernacle, they were to anoint those articles in the temple, including their, their own selves, with this holy anointing oil. And it says in Exodus chapter 30, uh, if you want, open your Bibles to Exodus 30, just to kind of give you an idea of, of this, because we'll de be developing this as we go. Because again, it speaks of sacrifice. It speaks of suffering. Myrrh speaks of death. And we're going to see that those things in the temple were certainly there um, certainly to um, as an offering to the Lord and we'll see that even the elements of the temple and the tabernacle were anointed with this oil. So Exodus chapter 30 beginning in verse 22 this is what it says, Moreover the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Also take for yourself quality spices and notice the ingredients of this 500 shekels of liquid myrrh half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, and 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane, and 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hen of olive oil, and you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an ointment compound, according to the art of the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. And it'll go, th go on into that chapter and talk about how they would use this this myrrh was one of the major elements of this, and they would use it to anoint the utensils, the, the altar where the sacrifice would be. Hence the name uh, you know, myrrh. It speaks of death. It speaks of sacrifice. It speaks of worship. And so those things would be anointed along with the priests themselves. And, and it was something that they weren't to be using on anything else but for those purposes. 
And we see myrrh also in Matthew chapter 2. If you remember when the three, actually they weren't three. <laughs> uh, they were, we don't know how many wise men there were. The Bible doesn't say. We assume that it's three because of the gifts they gave. But remember when Jesus was just under two years old, those wise men, those magi from the east, they came. And in Matthew 2.11 it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented him gifts. And here were the gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And again, when we think about these gifts uh, that these men had given to Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they were really prophetic in themselves because gold spake of his kingly quality, of his, of his heavenly origin. And the frankincense and the myrrh certainly spoke of, and uh, whether they knew it or not, was prophesying of his death about 30 years from then. And so we see this myrrh being used for, for gifts. And we also know that even during the crucifixion, in Mark chapter 15, verse 22, it says that when they laid Jesus down on the ground uh, to, to nail him to the beam, it says they brought to him into the, to the place of Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. We were just there a few weeks ago, and it's still there to this day. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, uh, but he did not take it. And one of the things that the ancients used to do is they used to use uh, myrrh to embalm the dead. Um, the Jews didn't embalm, and they certainly didn't uh, mummify like the Egyptians did, but they would wash the body, and they would wrap it in spices, including myrrhs and aloes, and they'd wrap it in, in cloths like they did Jesus. And so we can even see that in John chapter 19. Remember, after his death, after uh, he gave up the ghost, the Bible says, that after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a Pharisee, he was also a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission so he came and he took the body, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, notice, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds of this ointment, including myrrh, because it was meant to, uh, uh, the spices were meant to be packed in among the wraps so that Jesus' body would be preserved and it would keep out the, the smell as his body began to decay. But we know that he didn't decay, did he? because three days later he, was, he rose again from the grave. But it says, Then they took the body and they bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. So, let's look at verse 8 again. It says, These things says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. And when you think of the church of Smyrna, this persecuted church, this description that Jesus is offering of himself, is encouraging because he is the first and the last. He knows the beginning from the end. He's aware of their plight. He's aware of their persecution. He's very much aware of what they're going through. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14. It says, Paul writing to the Hebrews, the Jews, he said, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
So Jesus was very much aware, and because He is the first and the last, they, he was, this church was in very good hands. Jesus was very sympathetic. He understood what they were going through because He, he went through it all. In Jesus' short life, He experienced what no man has ever experienced. He, he experienced the things that no one has experienced. So when anybody comes to Him, perhaps yourself today, as you're, maybe you're worried, maybe you're heartbroken, maybe you're struggling with fear, maybe you've got an addiction of some kind, you can come to the Lord and you don't have to be ashamed to come to Him and ask Him for help. You don't have, you don't have to be, feel ashamed of even confessing to Him. You can come to Him and you can give Him, you can tell Him everything. And, and that's just who God is. See, if your God is this God that's so far off that he, 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 he could care less about you, if that's your impression of who God is, your impression is wrong. Because God is Emmanuel, right? What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. So if He's God with us, why would He allow us to flounder? Why would He, why would he permit us to flounder? And especially when we come to Him like a father receives his child. Isn't our Heavenly Father, isn't He like that? He is. The Bible's replete with examples of that, of His compassion, of His kindness. And so notice that Jesus says of Himself that He was dead and He came back to life. This could also be an encouragement to them because they were facing persecution, even unto the death, again, by the Jews and the Romans of that city and of that time. And because Jesus came to life, they didn't need to fear knowing that they would live again, that their physical death wasn't the end. In Romans chapter 8, verse 11, it says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and in fact, the, another portion of the Scripture says that unless the Spirit of God is in you, you are not a Christian. You are, you are not of Christ. You are not, you're none of His if the Spirit of God does not indwell in you. But he says, But the, if, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead also will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. See, that's what being born again is all about. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. Because I, there were times when I was younger uh, that I, I, I believed in God, but I didn't have the Spirit of God in me. I have, hadn't yet given over my heart to him. And I certainly didn't have the Spirit of God in me. Um, but that didn't happen until I was 24. And I remember that day very well. But notice what it says in Psalm 116, verse 15. Let me just read it to you. This verse sounds kind of strange, but the Lord says through the, the psalmist, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. And, and certainly the Lord doesn't look upon people who die, especially His own people, and is excited. The only reason it's precious to Him is because He knows that their journey is over. All of their toil, all of their pain and discouragement that they've experienced in this life has come to an end. We just uh, had a gravesite service for a dear sister that we, we've known for years, Charlotte Jackson, and she, was, she just turned 97, I believe, just a few days ago. But she, uh, she passed away and is with the Lord now just a few days before her 97th birthday. But she has had a, a long life, and now she's with the Lord, and we're so very thankful for that. Um, let's see. Notice in verse 9, back in our text this morning, Jesus says to this church, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. Notice this work, uh, this word works literally means toil and labor. Have you toiled and labor as a Christian? Uh, because really that's the only work that God is going to uh, 
remember and that He's going to um, bless you as a result is what we have done while we have been a Christian. See, all my works that I do apart from Christ are going to be burned up, the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, I believe, verse 10, it talks about the, the Bema Seat judgment uh, of believers, not a judgment of salvation or lack thereof, but a, really a, a, a place where we're, we earn rewards for what we have done since we've been a Christian, and everything else is going to be burned away. So there's nothing of my old life, there's nothing of my old deeds that I've done, even though they may have been good, not, none of that is going to survive. There's going to be nothing but only those things that... Uh, that God has empowered us through the Spirit of God since we've been a Christian. So in, in 1 Corinthians 15, notice it says, Paul encouraging the Corinthians, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And to me that's encouraging, because as Jesus was encouraging this church, and he said, I know your works, I know the things that you've been doing, I know how you've toiled, I know how you've suffered, and it is not in vain. It is never in vain to serve the Lord. In fact, it's the greatest joy of, of our lives. It's the greatest joy of my life to serve the Lord. I can't imagine doing anything else. I wouldn't want to do anything else at this point. Uh, he's got my life. He's got my heart. And Lord, you can do with it whatever you wish. Does that frighten you? Uh, hopefully, most of us who are listening, hopefully we're all um, in a place where we're, we feel the same way. Uh, because as a Christian, you ought to. You ought to. Because if he, we've been bought with a price, He owns us in a sense. And, and He's not going to do anything that's, that you're not going to desire. It, the wonderful thing is the Bible says that He causes us first to will and then to do of His good pleasure. So whatever He's got going in your life, whatever He's going to do in your life, whatever He's doing in your life, there's going to come a point where you're going to be like really excited about what He's doing and, and it won't be like a tug of war. You're not going to be like, oh, i got to go do this again. You know, it's not like that at all. He changes your heart. And I can tell you that that's happened to me. I never wanted to be where I'm at today. It would have scared me to death. I probably would have run the opposite direction if you told me that I'd be doing what I'm doing today. I, it was not even in my thoughts. <laughs> Never was in my thoughts. But the Lord changed my heart, and He's changing your heart too. And then He says also, I know your tribulation. This word is a Greek word, the lipsis, and it literally means pressure. It means affliction. And uh, hopefully my mother-in-law is online today uh, because she is Greek and she could probably pronounce this word a lot better than I can. But uh, maybe she can tell me if I pronounced it right later on. Uh, Philipsis. And so it's, it's a pressure, it's an affliction, it's burden, it's, it's, it's trouble is really what it is. Have you ever felt like you were just pressured? We all have. As adults, there's, there's points in our life where we just felt like we were between a rock and a hard spot. And sometimes going through heavy tribulation, uh, even though it might not be Christian tribulation, everyone goes through tribulation. In fact, in, uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Paul the Apostle, and certainly John the Apostle, who penned this letter, this book of Revelation, uh, Paul and John both, they were not strangers to affliction. In Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32, 
It says, and what, shall, and what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the fire of violence. They escaped the edge of the sword and out of weakness were made strong. They became valiant in battle and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. I love that. You know, when you, you know, in the world, might makes right. And in the world, might is, is the name of the game. You've got to be stronger than your opponent. And I love the fact that out of all these things, you know, it, it almost seems like a paradox. Because if we're one of God's children, you would think that, you know, he would just pave the way and allow everything to just be gravy train for us for the rest of our life. And, you know, there is a, a peace that we have that the world doesn't have but we also go through troubles and trials and tribulations. And a lot of times it depends on what time in, in history and in what country we're living in and what government we're being governed over by. Those things determine a lot of times how great our persecution is. Right now, we're not going through hardly any persecution. I mean, people give us the, the evil eye when we talk about um, you know, being against abortion and against uh, sexual sin like fornication or homosexuality. Nobody likes to hear those things, but that's the truth. The Bible calls them a sin. But yet our culture has embraced them, and now they are the pet of the, our culture, and they're the pet of the media. And, 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 they, and they, they say, don't dare touch any one of our pets. And that's the way our media is. And they're wrong. They're dead wrong. And they need to turn and, and repent Right? They need to turn from their sin because God will hold them accountable and they better take it seriously. And so should we. But notice, but I love that it says, the world was not worthy of these people who the world will look at and say they mean nothing. They're just the offscouring of the world. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, tempted, wandering in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And can I tell you, having just been back from Israel, we went to so many, we went all over the land, and we saw these dens and these caves that the, the believers were hiding out in at different times for persecution. And even throughout the Bible, we can see those places where they hid. It's an amazing thing. I would encourage you to come with us next year, if the Lord so will, uh, come with us to uh, Israel. You will love it. Begin thinking and praying about it right now. But notice in verse 39 of Hebrews 11, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. So even though they went through a lot, many of them didn't even receive the promise that God had given to them before their physical death. But they believed in God. And what did it say in Genesis 15 and in Hebrews? That because of Abraham's faith, he knew of, this, of, this, of the, the land that God would give him. And he never fully inherited it himself, but his seed. You know, because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Israel, 
They, they, they and their descendants, they inherited that land. But God counted Abraham's belief in God as righteousness. It was, it was faith that God had given him. So persecution, as we see here in verse 9, is in tribulation. These things are part of the Christian's life. Don't find it crazy or unusual if you do come across these kinds of things. Just bear with me for one second. So then he goes on and he says, I know your works, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. This poverty means they were literally very poor. That They weren't just poor, they were beggarly poor. And the saints in Smyrna, um, they had a, uh, the Lord loved them so much. And it had nothing to do with how much money they had. It had nothing to do with their pedigree. It had nothing to do with where they went to college. The Lord would rather be with a group of believers who were destitute in every sense of the word than to be in a fellowship or church of thousands of people whose hearts were, are far from Him and, and don't even know Him. He would rather be with a handful that really do love Him and know Him and the ones that are, that are being persecuted and are very poor. He'd rather be with them than to be with people who claim to know who He is, but they really don't care and they really don't want to know Him. They just live their own lives. Uh, Charles Stanley said this one time. He said, There was a peculiar honor in being near and like Jesus, who had nowhere to lay His head. And he says, I have learned this. Jesus is specially the partner of His poor servants. And I love that. I love that quote. He is near to those who are really struggling. And Jesus himself was no stranger to poverty either. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that through his poverty might become rich. It's kind of a, an interesting thing. We inherit the riches of heaven because of our faith in him. He became poor that we might become rich. And see, that's why Jesus deserves our worship. He deserves our very life. When you think about what He, um, the, the God of glory, God in human flesh came down to this earth. Do you, do you understand the great, the great jump that that was? To be the creator of all things and then to come down to an earth, to a creation that you built and then to have that creation, the capstone of your creation, man, to have man turn against you so much so that even his own people, the Jews and the Gentiles, all of us are complicit in Christ's death on the cross. Jews and Gentiles, as they nailed him to the cross, as they screamed out, we will not have this man be ruler over us, crucify him, crucify him. We were all complicit. And so Jesus understood this. But he says, notice, but you are rich. The word is plosios. And this literally means uh, abounding with wealth, abounding with wealth, or it could be virtual, or you know, um, eternal possessions, non-physical possessions. Um, it could mean that, and it sounds very similar to our word pleasure in English, in our English um, language. In Psalm sixteen, verse eleven, remember David in this prophetic psalm. He says, "You will show me the path of life, and in your presence." is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so we look forward to a time with the Lord, and everybody wants to be with the Lord, but they don't understand that there's only one way to God the Father. There's only one way to inherit heaven, and that is to 
uh, to receive Christ, to be born again. And that's what Jesus said. And there's no other way, but it's open to every single human being, open to everyone. You know, so many people today are hung up on the here and now. And, and, and what happens? You live maybe 70 years, maybe 90 years. Some people who are very fortunate, they live to be 100 or more. Um, very seldomly does that happen. But, you know, but after your short life here, think of that. After it ends, there is eternity. You know, and it's so easy to be short-sighted while we're here on this earth. We can be so short-sighted and we fritter away our lives. with the, and, and then we, we fail to realize that our time is so short, it's so limited, and the reward is so little on this earth. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 6 on the Mount of Beatitudes? In verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break through, break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your, will your heart be also. And uh, so many people today amassing riches, and, and it's, just, it's not going to be for anything. It's going to go to somebody else when they pass on. But it's better to be rich toward God. It's better to be rich toward His kingdom. And where is your treasure? Really, where is your treasure? You know, is, it, is, is your treasure something you can, you can look at? Is it something that you can hold in your hand? Certainly we treasure our wives, our families, our kids, and there's nothing wrong with that. We can, we can treasure them. But ultimately, where is, where, 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 what is our real expectation? What are we hoping for? That, that's a, a really good question. So giving your heart to Christ and being with Him forevermore is the best decision. Hmm. In James chapter 2, verse 5, James said to the, the Jews, to the church, he said, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world? To be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. And He has. He's given eternal life to those who love Him. Let's go on in verse 9 there. He says, I know your works, your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. And I also know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. This word blasphemy is really interesting because it really means vilification. It means speaking evil of something and someone. And it's specifically, it usually means the Lord Himself. And, and that's where we mostly encounter the word blasphemy. But blasphemy is actually a word that could be used for anyone that you tend to slander or speak injurious about. And so, uh, you know, it's interesting when you think about, you know, many people uh, are tempted to think that because Jesus was born into the Jewish race that He would cut the Jews some slack but he doesn't. Uh, the Lord is not partial. He's not, um, he's not partial to anyone. He's not a respecter of persons, as the King James says. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, it says, The Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. And boy, if the judges in this country and even members of Congress, if they were like this, the world would be a completely different place. But we know that this world is not our home. 
So we, we are not looking to make earth a utopia. We know that this earth has got a destiny and uh, it, it's, it's, it's not pretty. Uh, and so, but there is no partiality with God, it says in Romans 2.11. And even in the New Testament, Jesus never uh, held the Jews uh, in such close esteem that he never rebuked them. In, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, what did he call them? He said, you guys are a brood of vipers. They were very religious men, but they had failed to see all of the prophecies of the Old Testament, speaking of Christ, speaking of when he would come, how he would come, into what tribe he would come from. There were so many prophecies, and you've, you've known all this. If you've been with us for any length of time, we've gone through a number of these things. Prophecies that have been fulfilled very literally, very specifically, and yet they were so hard-hearted, and Jesus wasn't the kind of deliverer they were hoping for. They wanted someone to deliver them from Rome, but instead they got a meek and lowly Lamb of God who came and died for the sins of the world. They didn't want anything to do with that kind of leader, uh, even though that leader could have redeemed them from their sins, and ultimately they would spend eternity in glory. But many of those men are not in glory. They are, they are in hell. They are not in heaven. So, he says here in this last part of verse 9, he says, They say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. The, the Jews at this time, they, they had a, uh, Jesus called them a synagogue of Satan. And, and whether there was a synagogue there in Smyrna, it, there probably was, because wherever there's at least 10 or more Jews, uh, males, they, they would have a, they'd build a synagogue. But it could have been also the, the Jews... Uh, infiltrating or being amongst the church and um, and persecuting uh, the church as a result of their belief in Jesus, because they did not believe in Jesus, even though they should have. They and you know they 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 crucified him along with the Gentiles. But he called them a synagogue of Satan because God had so much more for them than what they were experiencing, much more for them than what they were doing. They should have been. Uh, they should have come into the church. They should have realized the, the, the scriptures like we all know them. They should have embraced Jesus. They should have become part of the church. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Anyone can come, right? The only uh, prerequisite is that you believe in Christ and what He did on the cross for you and that He's coming again. Do you believe that? Because that is the only entrance. And so these Jews were persecuting uh, the Christians at this time and they were not fulfilling what they should have. In fact, in Romans 2, verse 28, Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Because Jews, they, um, you know, the, 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 there's no doubt that these men were Jewish in ethnicity, but their calling and what they stood for, Jesus didn't even recognize because they, they had totally missed the point. And so in a sense he's saying, even though you're one outwardly, um, you are not one inwardly. In fact, he says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so it's more important to have the circumcision of the heart, where God uh, cuts away all that flesh in our heart. And, and that's done by offering ourselves up to him and confessing our sin and doing away with those things that we know aren't right. And each one of us knows there are things in our life that we ought to be shedding. We ought to be getting rid of those things. And believe me, you can try in the flesh to do that, 
but you're going to come back to it. The only, the only hope for any of us is to, uh, to ask Christ into our hearts. He has the power to give you to overcome those areas of sin and give you, and give you true repentance. That doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect because you're going to struggle from time to time. But as you get further along in your walk, you should be getting better in a sense. Even though you might not feel better, God is weaning you and, and, and removing things from your life. In fact, in, in his letter, Jesus' letter here in the next chapter that we're going to look at uh, to the church in Philadelphia, what did, what did he say to them? He says in uh, Revelation 3, verse 8, he says, I know your works. Again, now he's speaking to the church at Philadelphia. I know your works, and see, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. And if you have, for you have a little strength, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name, and here it is, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. And so there, there can be a, Jew one, a, a, a Jewish person who is a physical Jew, but if their heart isn't right toward God, God is saying, I don't even recognize that. You can, you can go through all the rituals and you can go through all the things that you've done and your ancestors have gone through because the, the real Jews are the ones like Abraham who believed in God by faith. People like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Moses, they all got it. They all understood this idea. But let's go back into verse 10 in our text this morning. It says, Do not fear now any of those things which you are about to suffer. About to suffer. Notice that. The early church did go through, and this specific church went through some very difficult things, and God has allowed it. But He was with them through it. And, and that's one thing to always remember. Whenever you're going through a difficulty, I was just talking to a woman the other day, and, and she was crying on the phone with me, and a dear sister... And so many things are going on in her life, and it was just so difficult. Things were just so difficult. It just seemed like things were piling up and piling up. And, and I wanted to encourage her and to say, you know what? God is, uh, He's not going to leave you and cry out to Him. You know, this is the time when you're going through all of those things to not allow your heart to be hardened, but rather say, Lord, whatever you want to do, I just want to, I want your peace. I want you to do the work in me that you're desiring to do. Because it, it does do that, doesn't it? When we go through difficulties, when we go through trials, things in our life, well, what do those things do? They can either make us bitter or they can make us better. And one of you, all of us, respond in one of two ways. You can get bitter and angry toward God or, you can, or it can make you better. You can actually say, God, I know you're allowing this, and, and, it's, and you may not be doing this specifically to me, but you're allowing it for a reason. I don't understand why it is, but I submit to your authority, whatever it is you want to do. That's the right way to think of it. And you know what? You'll find that God, uh, He can make that, that trial go away much quicker because he, he might have allowed it to just get you to that place where you look up. Most people don't look up anymore. They're just looking to their own means. They're looking to their credit card. They're looking to their 501k or, or uh, 401k. Uh, they're, they're looking to their, their physical things and resources. They, they very seldom look up. And see, God allows these things to get us to look up. Are you looking up? Or are you looking down at the earth? So, something to consider. And so even though the church right now, even though we may not be going through uh, persecution today, what we're going through right now is just a trial, isn't it? It's not a persecution. The government is not coming up, down upon us and saying, 
you know, you can't meet anymore. Well, actually they are, but for different reasons. Um, that there's coming, you, you understand what I'm saying. If it wasn't for the health of people, things would be back to normal. This is something that's hit the whole world all in one big wide paintbrush, okay? In one big brush stroke, God has uh, allowed this on the, on the earth. But it's not just about the church. Certainly we're, we're involved in it and we need to respond uh, to it. But he's allowing it for a reason. But he's gonna, he has been and will continue to be with us through it. And so it's not wrong to pray for deliverance from these things. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, one of my favorite verses, it says, For God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and what that means is, is it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not going to go through tribulation. The Bible says that the church won't go through the great tribulation period. We, we know that that period is a period that's coming upon the earth after the church is removed in the rapture. We know that that's going to happen, but we are not going to go through that tribulation, but we will go through difficulties in this life. The first century church did, and we are not exempted from difficulties and trials. In fact, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, Paul said this to his young protege. He said, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's just a question of to what extent. Paul certainly at his time, he suffered great persecution, even to the point where finally they put Paul, when he, when he was led to Rome, it tells us there in the book of Acts, that when he finally got to Rome, what did Nero do? Caesar Nero, he chopped Paul's head off. He had a, either a, a, an axeman uh, cut his head off. And Paul knew that that was coming, and it didn't dissuade him from his course. He finished his course right and well. Look at verse 10 again. It says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. This de devil is Diablos, and uh, he was going to bring persecution against the church. And notice, don't, don't fear these things uh, because you're going to be tested. The idea here is to be examined, to be scrutinized, you know, to examine at, like under a microscope. And, and that's what happens here. Uh, there's a, a phrase, and you've heard me say it, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted. I can say that I have faith, and I can boast of great faith. I, I don't, but if I did, I could do that. But the Lord allows things to happen in my life to really prove to me. He scrutinizes. He knows, but I don't know my, the extent of my faith. And sometimes I don't really know until a trial comes into my life. I don't know until something comes into me, into my life, that just shakes up the apple cart. Then I find out really where I'm at. I find out really what I'm made of. In fact, in James chapter 1, verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And this, is, this word trials is, is putting to the proof. You know, you're proofing it. You're, you're whole, the, the, the people in the ancient Israel and in the ancient uh, Middle East, when they would buy a piece of pottery, they would hold it up to the sun, and they, they were actually proving it. They were scrutinizing it because holding it up to the light 
They could see whether this thing had been cracked or broken before because they were very skilled at, at, at filling in those cracks and assembling the thing together and painting it again and making it look like it was fine when in actuality it really wasn't. It had been broken before. But that's the idea. Count it all joy, he says, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing or the proving of your faith, what does it produce? It produced patience. Patience is a steadfast endurance, right? And then he goes down in verse 12 of that same chapter in James 1, and he says, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive, notice, the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he, tempt him, nor does he himself tempt anyone the devil is the one who tempts, but God, in, in these words here in verses 12 and 13, these words tempted, the majority of them here, are the same exact word we saw in verse 10 where it says that you will be tested. The word tested is the exact same thing here. You're being tempted. Let no one say when he is tested, I am tested of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself test anyone. He, he allows it to happen, and, and God knows the results. Sometimes we don't know what the results are, but He allows those things to, to try us to, to, so that we might know where we stand. And I tell you, knowing where it is that you are is, is, a, is a good thing. Because, again, I can, I can march around with all this bravado and, and boast of some great faith and then to realize when a storm comes up, I'm running for the hills. I'm screaming out loud and I'm, you know, cowering under my bed, you know. We don't always know these things until they come upon us. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 in that great hall of faith chapter, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, it's the same word here as we, as we read uh, in this chapter, in verse 10 here. When he, he was tested when he offered up Isaac, whom he had received or he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. And so Abraham was tested. God knew the outcome of Abraham's obedience. He was going to go through it. You recall he pulled that knife up and he, his young son, he was probably 30 years old at this time, he was going to plunge the knife into his chest there on the Temple Mount in Israel in that area. And God, remember, stopped him. Because God wanted to find out, are you, are you, are you willing? I'm, I don't want you to do this, Abraham, but are you willing to? And at the time, Abraham didn't know that God was going to stop him. He was already going to go through with it, knowing very well that God did not approve of the pagan uh, practice of human sacrifice. He knew that. But he also trusted God that even if he did put Isaac to death, that God would raise him from the dead. That's what the rest of that passage tells us. And why are we tested? Why, are we, why do we go through these things? In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 7, these things happen to us that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious, listen to this, than gold that perishes. Gold perishes. It doesn't last forever. But the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is awesome to consider. Um, my faith is being tested, and it's good for me because I need to know. God already knows the outcome. He can't learn anything. The moment he learns, he ceases to be God. If you read Psalm 139, he knows all things. There's, there's nothing I, I... Even the thoughts that I'm going to think tomorrow, God knows. 
The very words that I speak tomorrow, God has already heard them. Can you imagine a being like that? that that's who we're dealing with. That's who we worship. That's who we love. I love in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 10, he says, he's speaking to Israel in, in this passage, and he says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. Have the Jews gone through the furnace of affliction? You better believe it. They were, they were tested in Egypt. They were tested in Babylon. They were tested in Assyria. They were tested in all of the countries throughout the world that they were dispersed from when the Romans attacked them in 70 AD. They were tested and still are being tested more than any other people. I tell you, these folks are amazing. I love the Jewish people and I love the land of Israel. It, but they are, they are smart and they're tenacious and they're ready for anything because they've had to be. Because everywhere they've gone, they've been hunted, they've been persecuted, they've been slandered. Um, Nazi Germany under Hitler, they tried to do that. Um, Yasser Arafat, uh, 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 Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden. And guess what? The Jews are still here and all those guys are gone. <laughs> All those guys are gone, but Israel still exists, and they're going along. And he says, notice in verse 10, back in our text, he says, You will have tribulation ten days. Now, there's a lot of speculation of what this means, and I won't get into this, but just understand that there is a very defined point of time that God is going to allow them to have tribulation. And, and to me, that's really encouraging, because whenever we go through something, it could be a physical affliction. You know, you may have uh, the shingles. You may have some disease of some kind. You may have the coronavirus. And you, how long is this thing going to last? God knows the length of it. And He knows what it's going to do and how it's going to affect you in the interim. He knows all these things. And aren't you glad that He knows the end of it? And you know, we need to trust Him and wait upon Him when we go through these things. He says, you will have tribulation ten days. And he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, the devil hates the church. And he's hated the church since the day of Pentecost, when the church began in Jerusalem. And he hates the fact that soon we will be exalted in glory because of our faith in Christ. But he will be sent to the lake of fire to, to live and, 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 and be uh, for eternity. He will be in, in flames and in torment. He hates the fact that we are going to spend time with Him where there are pleasures forevermore <laughs> and free from all of that pain and all of that anxiety. But He Himself, there is no going back for Him. And his, his judgment is sure and it's going to happen. And the Bible says that He is, that's why today He is like a devouring lion going throughout the earth seeking whom He may devour. And you know what? This is real stuff, folks we got family members who are held captive by drugs and pornography and, and held up in their hearts by materialism and, and all their life is getting, getting, getting and fulfilling this desire, fulfilling that desire. And at the end of it all, they will perish and they will not be in heaven. And see, that's why God uh, loves people. And that's why Satan is so furious against the church. He wants to kill that which God has redeemed but see, the thing is, we have to come to Him. We have to be willing to be redeemed. He's not going to force anybody to come to Him. Are you going to come to Him? Are you going to come to Him today? I would encourage you to consider coming to Christ if you've never come to Him. Because there's no greater joy, no greater thing in the, in the earth that you can experience than knowing that you're a child of God. It is the greatest and most glorious thing of all. He says, 
you will have tribulation ten days, he tells this church. And this could have been ten different Roman emperors. This could have been ten different seasons of time. We don't really know exactly what this means, but it's a, a defined time. To me, that's, that's good news. But I love what it says in Romans 8.31. It says, What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, uh, the, the enemies of the cross, the enemies of God, the enemies of Jesus Christ have, since the beginning, tried to snuff out the church, snuff out the, the effectiveness of the church, and it will not come to pass. Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. It's his church. It doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to any other pastor. The church belongs, we belong to him. We belong to him. And if God is for us, who can be against us? And see, this church was going through persecution, but again, it was measured. It was measured. And he says, be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. I love what uh, one commentator says, a, a, a dear brother in Christ. He says, ease and prosperity are nowhere promised the Christian as a reward for his faith. Ease and prosperity are nowhere promised the Christian as a reward for his faith. On the contrary, he is warned to expect persecution in this hostile world, and we must live for Christ today. That is the only way to guarantee that we would be able to die. That is the only way to guarantee that we would be able to die or, or Christ tomorrow. And notice that Jesus will give you the crown of life. Smyrna was called the crown city. And it's kind of uh, poetic if you think of it. <laughs> it was called the crown city because the Acropolis there in Smyrna was encircled with flowers and a hedge. And so it looked like a laurel wreath and the hedge and the myrtle trees. I love what it says in Hebrews chapter 12. You know, we sang the song this morning, Overcome, and I chose that song on purpose because what does it say in Hebrews 12? Paul writing, I believe, he says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And Paul is thinking of the, uh, the Roman games, the Isthmus games, whatever they were called, the, the Olympics, that, that he was thinking of those games when he was thinking this. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher. He's the author and he's also the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, for considered him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. And I love what it says in James 2 concerning this crown of life. He said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive a crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Do you want that crown of life? I know I do. I'm looking forward to that day. And, and, and again, that, that judgment seat of Christ, not a judgment for bad things, but for a judgment for believers who will receive rewards. The Bible tells us that we'll take the crowns that we've earned, that God has, um, that He's going to give to us because of our obedience to Him. And He's going to give us crowns. He's going to give us rewards. And we're going to take those rewards and we're going to cast them at His feet. And we're going to exalt Him and say, Lord, if it wasn't for You, I would have nothing. There's, this crown would mean nothing. 
I would have no reward if you hadn't have worked in my life. See, in and of myself, and maybe you can attest to this as well, I know there's nothing good within myself. Try as I might to be a good person, I just I can't be a good person. At, time and time again, I realize where I fall and where I fail. And it's only as a, a believer in Christ I know that my righteousness, my righteousness is not what makes me accepted into heaven. It's His righteousness. And we receive His righteousness by receiving Christ, by believing in what He did, what He said, what He's, what he's done, and what He's going to do. So we believe in Him. But notice, the verse 11 here is in our final verse. He who overcomes... Or he who has an ear, excuse me, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this letter was meant to be read by all those churches, those seven churches that we talked about, Smyrna and Ephesus and Laodicea and Sardis and Philadelphia. All these churches were to read the letters of the other churches that Jesus sent because each one of those has an effect on us. We all see ourselves. There's some shade of meaning there for all of us to look at. I would encourage you to read chapters 2 and 3, and, and as a Christian, examine your own heart under these things and say, you know, which one of these things, which one of these churches, which one of these letters that Jesus wrote to the church, where do I, where, where do I fit into all of this? You might fit into a couple of them, and you might even receive some of the encouragement that God gives, but also look at the, the things that you know that aren't right, because Jesus also gives some um, minor rebuke and sometimes a sharp rebuke to some of those churches. But he who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, the apostle who wrote this book that we're reading today, uh, the book of Revelation, he penned it anyway. For whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. And is that faith something that I have... Uh, mustered up myself? Is that faith something that I have done? Am I responsible for my faith? Um, I think faith is something that God gives to you and it's something that can be exercised. But it originally came from Him. I didn't have it within me. God gave me even the faith to believe in Him. Isn't that incredible? He, he, do you see that He's given everything? And all we have to do is simply trust and believe Him. How hard is that? It's, it, it, it makes sense. It's the most reasonable thing to consider Christ. In John chapter 16, verse 32, Jesus speaking, He says, Behold, the hour comes, yea, is now come, that you shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And He was speaking to His disciples right before His, um, his, before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, You're going to all leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And these things I have spoken to you, that in me you might have peace. Notice, in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. I, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that I don't even have to be too concerned about what happens to me. I know that anything that comes into my life comes through the filter of His divine love and grace. And to me, that makes all the difference in the world because if He's allowing me to go through a great a mountaintop experience, it's just to encourage me. And if He allows me to go into the depths of, of difficult things, I know there's a reason for that. And it's to refine me, isn't it? It's to refine me. And maybe it's to get my attention. Maybe I've been getting my eyes focused on other things. And sometimes it's good to get our eyes back on Jesus. Know the song that we sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And so I can often get my, my attention, my focus off, and he allows something in my life just to wake me up a little bit. And sometimes I need to be woken up. And sometimes it has nothing to do with anything. Although I doubt that, that there's, there's a reason for everything. But he is sovereign over it all. And notice what it says here in the very last verse, and then we'll end. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. The second death. There's a phrase that says, If you are born once, you will die twice. If you are born twice, you will die once. And what does that mean? Every one of us is born physically. We were born from our mother's womb and we came into the world but if we were born only once, we're going to die a physical death, and we're certainly going to die a second death. That's eternal damnation. That's eternal death. And nobody likes to talk about that, but it's the truth. That's the one thing that nobody wants to talk about anymore, but yet it's the most important thing. Because uh, th that, that is really, we, we determine what we do in this first life. That If we're born once, if we receive Christ during that time, then we're born twice, right? We're born physically, and then we're born again, as it says in John chapter 3. So we're born twice, and then physically we're going to die, but guess what? We're going to live forevermore. We're going to live eternally. And those who die, who, who are born, um, born once, they will die twice. They will die twice. They'll die a physical death and they'll also be part of the second death. And the Bible says that. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20, just at the end of this book here, and we'll just read this and we'll be done. It won't take very long, but it's important that we look at this because uh, it's the great white throne judgment. Anyone who is uh, at this great white throne judgment, and this is after the, the tribulation period, this is after Satan has been judged uh, at the end and after the thousand years of Christ, on this earth, what does it say? Then I saw a great white throne. We're looking at uh, Revelation 20, verse 11. We just got a few verses and then we'll be done. Thanks for hanging in there. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead. These are dead who, not only dead in Christ, uh, spiritually dead too. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And notice, books were opened. And these are the books of the, the, a record of all the deeds that you've ever done. And he says, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And notice, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Do you see that everything that we've done, especially for uh, this 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 judgment is for unbelievers not for believers we've already been taken with the lord but at this judgment is strictly for unbelievers and every deed that they've ever done is going to be manifest before them and before god he knows all things it won't take him long to be able to communicate the sentence and it says and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. So anyone who has died and has gone to Hades, or hell as we call it, those will be brought, they will be resurrected, and they will be judged. Notice, 
They will be judged, each one according to his works, and then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so there is a resurrection of the just, and there's a resurrection for the unjust. We know that at the rapture of the church, if you're part of the church, when the rapture occurs, you'll be going up with the Lord. Your, your body will be changed. You'll be transformed. You'll have a body like Jesus had on his resurrection day, one that can pass through, has different physical properties, can pass through walls, can pass through the wraps that he was buried in. That's exactly what happened. That's the kind of body we're going to receive. But there's also a resurrection of the unjust, the resurrection of the wicked, those who have denied Christ all their life, and then when they die, their spirit goes to Hades or hell. And, at that, and, and they're there for a season until this judgment. And at this judgment, death and hell and everyone contained in it will be cast into the lake of fire, which is the final resting place and the eternal resting place for the wicked for all of eternity. And see, that's why we are encouraged to share the truth with those that we love. That is why we talk to friends and family and co-workers. This is why it's so important, because none of us wants to see anybody that we love go through these things. And so, I take these things seriously, but, but you know, as we look at these uh, churches, next week we'll be getting into the next church, uh, letter that Jesus wrote to the church of Pergamos, and this was a church that was involved in compromise. So we'll look at, at that as well. And I tell you, these letters, as we go through them, they're not easy, are they? As we read them, we see a reflection of ourselves. We see a reflection of, of things around us. And boy, it, it really they really are sobering, and they're meant to be that way. And I, I would encourage you not to get discouraged and not to shrink back from these. I would encourage you to come and and listen to these uh, because there's great encouragement and there's also great warning as well and, and we really need both of those things. I need to be warned even as a Christian I still need to be warned and I need to be encouraged too because uh, otherwise you get really despondent and you get really discouraged and see the Lord knows that that balance that we need especially as Christians and, and He knows uh, but let's take our hearts before the Lord right now and just ask Him to do whatever He wants Okay, Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you for uh, this letter that you've written to the church at Smyrna, Father. And Lord, we, we, we look at this church and we see that it was a, a, a poor church, a, a persecuted church by the world, by the Jews, and by the devil himself. And, and Lord, we know that um, these things are coming uh, for, for us, the church. We don't know the time, but we know that it's just part and parcel for being a Christian, these difficulties that we face in life. Lord, help us not to shrink back or to abandon you because of these, these things. And right now, Lord, we are not going through that so much. Um, but Lord, whenever it is in the future that these things begin to ramp up, Lord, help us to read this letter again and to realize that we are in good company. Lord, that we are in good company. And so we thank you, Lord, that you're the head of the church. Lord, that you're the head of all things, and we can trust you, Lord. Have your way with us tonight and all throughout this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.